0: Seriously popular. Hello, I'm Natasha Livingston, Royal Correspondent for the Mail on Sunday. Welcome to The Crown Fact or Fiction? This is the podcast that takes a critical look at the crown and tells you if what you're seeing is how things really happened. As always, I'm joined by Royal Biographer and Mail columnist Robert Hardman. Last episode, we took a dive into series two, but this time around, we're going to look at an episode from series four.
1: Hello, Natasha. Yes, we're going to look at this time at season four, which really could be summed up as the Thatcher years. We're in the 80s, when the two main players in charge of the country were both women. Britain had its first female Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. And we in the media, the public love to speculate on the nature of that relationship. And the crown certainly doesn't hold back.
0: And the relationship between The Queen and Margaret Thatcher is not the only interesting relationship going on here there's actually a little interesting bit of showbiz gossip that Robert spotted and informed me about at the time this series was being filmed which was around 2020 Gillian Anderson who is of course playing Thatcher was actually in a relationship with Peter Morgan the writer she gave some quite interesting quotes at the time saying that for her own sanity they kind of had to have some boundaries and she said that she wouldn't comment on the script if he didn't comment on her performance and apparently she described a scene where she was in her full Thatcher gear And Peter Morgan came over and she said she smiled at him as herself smiling at her boyfriend. And Peter Morgan was like, oh, my gosh, this is Thatcher. You're smiling at me like Margaret Thatcher. (laughs) So, yes, lots of interesting dynamics going on here, both on and off screen.
1: Well, it certainly gives this series an added piquancy. I think the episode we're going to pick out of the whole series is episode eight. It's called 48 to 1. I think of all the episodes in this series, to my mind, it's the most memorable and it comes to the point where the queen and thatcher are at loggerheads and i can tell you now i'm not a fan of this episode i can't wait to get my teeth into it
2: (laughs) on this the occasion of my 21st birthday i welcome the opportunity to speak to all the peoples of the british commonwealth and empire wherever they live whatever race they come from I declare before you all that my whole life shall be devoted to your service.
1: Well, I thought that was an absolutely brilliant opening to an episode. One of my favourite openings, if you like, of the entire crown. I mean, it's a fabulous tour of the old British Empire, if you like. I mean, this is setting the scene spectacularly with a Hollywood budget. So we open with Princess Elizabeth, as she then was, delivering that famous 21st birthday address, ostensibly from Government House, Cape Town, South Africa. Everybody is aware of the story, the famous words, the whole of my life, whether it be long or short. It's a sort of unofficial vow that will be amplified by her coronation, which, of course, at the time we didn't know, but just six years later, she'd be there at Westminster Abbey saying much the same. But it's beautifully done. There she is sitting down at a table to record these famous words, and then the camera pans. As it were, to those people listening all around what was still then the empire. We have to remember this is April 1947. The British Empire doesn't formally come to an end, actually, until August 1947 with the partition of India. So you see everywhere from Africa through the South Seas, the Australian outback. It just pans to these glorious shots of effectively all her future subjects sitting there listening. Sorry to put one dampener on this right at the start. I do happen to know because I researched this very closely for a an earlier book I wrote. I dug out the tour diary of this great South Africa tour. This was the visit that the whole royal family, the king, the queen, Princess Elizabeth, Princess Margaret did to South Africa, leaving in January 1947. And actually, this speech, although History records that it was delivered from Cape Town, South Africa, are actually found in the tour diary. It was all pre-recorded in the garden of a hotel in what was then southern Rhodesia. I think we can forgive the crown that. The whole world thinks it came from Cape Town. It was pre-recorded and it's going out right around the world. Everyone is glued to it. And then it cuts, doesn't it, Natasha, to a rather interesting listener in Oxford,
0: Yes, we meet Margaret Roberts, who obviously became Margaret Thatcher. And we see her studying at university. She's in all of her robes. We see the Bodleian Library. And she's working away in the laboratory doing some very complicated things to do with chemistry that I don't understand. But it all looks very impressive.
1: (laughs) She was a chemist. They got that right.
0: Yes, exactly. And we see her graduating with her very proud parents by her side, posing for photographs. And yes, this is sticking true to fact. She studied chemistry at Somerville College at Oxford. And then went on to work briefly as a research chemist before becoming a barrister. And then we all know what she did next. So yes, a very interesting setting up of two different timelines here and two different women.
1: That's what the Crone loves, don't they? They love two big stories in parallel. And I think, you know, this, this is fabulously set up. You know, here is this princess with her destiny. And then, of course, probably the most famous post-war uh, British politician certainly embarking on her. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm feeling very pumped up at this point.
0: Wow. That's saying something.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and then stepped off and plunged down into the waxing viridescence of the Ionian. ...below the Good work. Even on my desk. Morning, James.
2: Morning, sir. Good morning, Michael. There. Sorry to ambush you, but I've got the Today newspaper asking for confirmation of an apparently open secret in Commonwealth government circles. That the Queen is deeply frustrated by Thatcher's refusal to back sanctions against the Apartheid regime in South Africa. A frustration which threatens to strain her relationship with the Prime Minister, who the Queen holds personally responsible. And they'd like you as Palace Press Secretary to comment.
1: Well, the episode proper opens with Michael Shea, who was indeed Press Secretary to the Queen in the mid 80s. And we see him um, sitting at a typewriter. He's um, bashing out What looks an utterly unreadable, pretentious work um, called Ixion's Wheel, lots of homeric uh, analogies and um, fabulously ornate words like crepuscular. And he takes it off to see his literary agent, who is trying to be polite, but I uh, can't help saying um, this is going to be a very hard read and it weighs a ton. Yeah, well um, done for
0: carrying up the stairs. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, I
1: mean, the subjects of this is what it's showing is the, the uh, literary ambitions of the press secretary. It's setting up Michael Shea as someone who um, has a hinterland. Um, actually, he, he he was a very interesting man. Um, he, Funnily enough, he went to Gordonston. In our last episode, we were talking about how miserable... Prince Charles Van Gordonston, what a barbaric place it was, but it had nonetheless produced Michael Shea as well as Prince Charles, and uh, he did rather see himself as a man of letters. Anyway, he goes from this uh, less than promising meeting with his literary agent to his day job at Buckingham Palace. And he's accosted by a press officer who says, hell, the press are starting to report tensions between the Queen and Margaret Thatcher over the Commonwealth. I mean, this was known about the idea that there might be some sort of difference of opinion over the Commonwealth. It was nothing new, but obviously the Crown's got to make this a new thing and set the scene very quickly. So the press officer is saying to Shea, you know, what do I say to the press? And he says, I don't be ridiculous. The Queen never, ever expresses an opinion about her prime minister. And then we see uh, another visit to turn up, don't we, Natasha?
0: Yeah, overlaid this conversation. There's um, video footage of police in South Africa beating black protesters, laying up the historical context here. And a reporter is noting how brutality against protesters is causing increased international outrage. And then, yes, the Queen is meeting a man who she refers to as Sonny, who we know is Sir Sonny Ramville, who was the Commonwealth Secretary General from 1975 to 1990. And someone that, Robert, I believe you know.
1: Well, I, I had the pleasure of interviewing him on a number of occasions. He was a formidable figure in the story of the Commonwealth. As you say, he really steered it all through this period. I think many would argue this was the Commonwealth at its absolute peak in the days when it really mattered, in the days when TV reporters would stand breathlessly outside uh, Marlborough House, its headquarters to report the latest discussions in the Commonwealth. Sonny Ramphal was formerly the Foreign Minister of Guyana. He became Secretary General. He was, I would say, a sort of centre-left figure. He was very, very keen on the idea of sanctions against South Africa. This was something, obviously, that Mrs Thatcher hated. And he certainly got to know the Queen very well. And we see him in this episode effectively saying to the Queen, look, the whole Commonwealth wants to apply sanctions against South Africa. There's one country that won't. That's Britain. What can we do about it? And we're starting to get the sense that the Queen is taking sides here. She's taking sides with the Commonwealth against her own prime minister in Britain, because she says, well, I'm going to have a chat with her when we get to the Commonwealth summit in the Bahamas, which is coming up. This, by the way, explains the title of this episode, 48 to 1. It's 48 Commonwealth nations versus one, the UK. Then we cut to Margaret Thatcher, don't we?
0: Yes, well, we see Margaret Thatcher in the kitchen. She's dressed less like a prime minister and more like a kitchen maid. She has a sort of frilly apron on. And she's cooking a dish called Kedgeri, which many listeners might know what that is, but it was new to me. And apparently it mm-hmm. is a rice paste dish that was popularised in colonial India and brought back to Britain and adapted to our taste buds, kind of in a similar way to mango chutney. So I guess that just meant less spice. But this was a scene that was initially surprising for me because she appears to be cooking for the cabinets. And Robert, is this something that she actually did?
1: Well, I, I think this scene does rather ring true. It brings out that sort of twin side of Margaret Thatcher, which on the one hand, she is this incredibly dynamic stateswoman and unique political figure. But at the same time, she also felt very much a traditional housewife role as well. She liked cooking. And here we see her in the tiny dining Street flat. I have to remember, up until the Blairs moved into Downing Street, the prime minister lived above number 10 and this really pokey flat. And that comes through here. There she is at the stove, cooking away, uh, clearly not a very good Kedgeri. She's sort of spilling bits of it all over the place and serving it up to her sort of inner circle, including... A very good Jeffrey Howe. It really does look like Jeffrey Howe, who really was her foreign secretary at the time. And there's about six of them there. And as she cooks, she's busy chatting away about the Commonwealth and how ridiculous it is and how absurd it is that the Queen should be expected to meet leaders from places like Uganda and Malawi. And she goes on about how these are unstable despotisms. I mean, you know, she would never have said that because she knows that the Queen grew up with these people. I mean, these Commonwealth nations had only been independent for, in some cases, just a few years. And so they were still very much raw and fledgling democracies. And Mrs. Thatcher understood that that. The Queen certainly understood that. But anyway, it's setting it up for this obvious punch-up that's coming fairly soon between monarch and prime minister.
2: To what do I owe the honour?
1: I came to tell you that I've decided to ask Edward to be my best man. Not Charles? No. And him see what it feels like to be sidelined in a
3: slimmed-down role. Jealous fool.
2: What's he jealous of?
1: Me and you, of our closeness.
2: I just want to see you all happy. There are two families I care about, my own family and the Commonwealth family of nations. Keeping them all together is my life's work. Now I must get on.
0: So, we've just seen the Queen getting ready for the upcoming Chogum, which is a fabulous acronym that stands for the Commonwealth Heads of Government Meeting. Such a mouthful that we have discussed at great length in a previous episode titled Succession. The Queen is running through her outfit options for the upcoming summit she's in a regal yellow gown and we see lots of other beautiful outfits lined up in racks on the wall and in comes a young prince andrew who starts talking about his upcoming wedding and just a fact or fiction point here the timeline is not quite right because the chogham was in october 1985 which the queen is meant to be preparing for and Prince Andrew didn't even propose to his future wife, Sarah Ferguson, until February 1986. So they're scrunching the timelines together here, which we know they like to do. But then anyway, Prince Andrew tells the Queen something quite interesting about who he wants his best man to be.
1: Yes, uh, Prince Andrew is being extremely bumptious here and he comes bounding in. Andrew is probably one of very few people who could actually interrupt the Queen while she was having a dress-fitting session. And he busily says that he's going to appoint Prince Edward as his best man and not Charles because he thinks Charles is jealous of him. And then he, he goes into this sort of rather chippy rant where he talks about why he thinks he'd make a much better anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.
4: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk?
1: One point, we do see a sort of element of retrofitting going on here because he comes up with this phrase. He says, oh, Charles wants a slimmed-down monarchy. Now, come on. We know what's going on here. This is Peter Morgan and the Crown script writers sticking in latter-day royal phrases into the mouths of people uh, 20 or 30 years ago because it makes them look clever. Um, uh, Prince Andrew at the time was not worried about the slimmed-down monarchy. He wasn't really worried about anything. He was a very happy Royal Navy pilot. Nonetheless, it's reminding us that there are Within the Queen's orbit, yes, there's her family of nations, the Commonwealth, there's the royal family, the Windsors and the retentions on both sides. So it's really, I think, a device to show her as a kind of referee on both fronts.
0: Yeah. And even though the timelines don't quite match up, the facts are correct that when they did have their wedding, Prince Andrew did choose Edward to be his best man and Prince Charles gave a reading. So that bit is accurate.
1: Yeah. And we are going to see later on in this episode, the royal wedding did coincide with the great Commonwealth showdown. But right now, the timings are slightly out of kilter. But, you know, I think we can forgive the crown that.
0: Yeah, I think we're going to see a bit of Chogham now. There
2: are always tensions between nations. Global peace is fragile. But I believe this union offers us all something rare and valuable, the capacity to celebrate difference, to value compromise over conflict, and to find a way to heal divisions in the interests of peace and goodwill. Thank you.
0: So the Queen is on her way to Chogham. We see her on the plane preparing with her papers, looking over them very studiously, preparing diligently for the summit. Then she arrives. It's a red carpet arrival, in fact, in Nassau in the Bahamas. And yes, we can really see here that the Crown have spared no expenses on the budget. It is absolutely beautiful. It's just sumptuous on the screen. As just a normal viewer, in drizzly February, I'm enjoying the sofa escaping that the Crown does provide.
1: Yeah, it's a classic case of the Crown chucking all the money at the uh, props and the settings in the hope that we will then believe that the script is correct. (laughs) Uh, So we, we see the Queen arrive at this Commonwealth summit and then I'm afraid it's complete And utter rubbish, because the Queen then walks into the conference centre and starts addressing the Commonwealth leaders as they sit around the conference table. Now, this never happened. The Queen never actually set foot inside a Chogham or a Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting, actually, until 1997. That was the first time she was actually sort of on the inside. She was very much there as a sort of non-executive. She was there to bring kind of royal glamour. She operated entirely on the margins of these summits. She never took part in the deliberations, let alone stood there and lectured the leaders. She was there to hold individual audiences, receptions. She would always hold a banquet. Everybody loved having her there. But it was made very clear as head of the Commonwealth, she was not involved in the hardball stuff. So that never happened. But, hey, you know, it's the crime.
2: Oh, It was kind of you to come. I won't keep you long. I was hoping we could briefly discuss South Africa. Mom. 48 countries of the Commonwealth are now preparing a statement condemning the South African regime and recommending tougher sanctions. What I would like you to do is sign that statement.
3: If I didn't know better, that sounded very much like a
2: directive. Think of it as a question.
1: So we've just seen the Queen and Mrs Thatcher... On the Royal Yacht, Mrs. Thatcher's turned up for the audience in the Queen's sitting room in Britannia, which is what happened at every summit when the yacht was there. All the leaders of the Commonwealth would be invited aboard for a a one-on-one, not just Mrs. Thatcher. But in this scene, Olivia Colman, playing the Queen is absolutely tearing a strip off Mrs Thatcher who is giving as good as she gets and it boils down to a full on fight over what Britain should be doing in relation to the Commonwealth and you have Mrs Thatcher Gillian Anderson coming out with borderline racist terminology where she dismisses Commonwealth leaders as tribal leaders in eccentric costumes the Queen shoots back well hang on that's exactly what I am she says you know these are proud nations you know how very dare you almost. And then to cap it all, the Queen instructs her prime minister. She says, what I want you to do is to join them. I mean, this is just so wrong, so away with the fairies. I'm afraid, you know, Peter Morgan is not just taking liberties. It's not dramatic license. It's not just imagining what the Queen and Mrs. Thatcher would have discussed. If you look at all the accounts, every extant account of the relationship between those two women, this sort of showdown would simply never have happened. It's just wishful thinking. I would go as far as to say this is a left-wing script being foisted upon the Queen to sort of put her in a sort of... anti-Thatcherite position. She wasn't left-wing. She wasn't right-wing. She was the queen. She simply didn't tell her prime ministers what to do or what to think. She might have had her own inner concerns about the future of the Commonwealth, but it would never be presented in a way like this where she's literally bristling. And Mrs. Thatcher had far too much respect for her as well to start sort of wagging her finger back again and saying, Things like, well, the end of the British Empire may have come as a shock to your family, but it didn't come as a shock to the rest of us. I mean, it just, I'm sorry, pass.
0: You really get the sense from this scene that Mrs Thatcher and the Queen actively disliked each other and we've seen in other episodes that they kind of portray the queen as not getting on particularly well with Tony Blair or kind of having almost being irritated by him but here it's really as you say it's a fiery exchange and it's a real sort of (laughs) the look in their eyes it's really kind of vengeful the exchange and obviously with these Private meetings. No one is ever in the room. There's never a record of them. But it's definitely quite a strident retelling. I mean,
1: of I I'm going to say that it's almost sexist. It's clearly written by a man. You know, hamming up. You know, here are two feisty women having a go at each other. And Mrs. Thatcher, in her memoirs and in later interviews, did complain that people were always trying to sort of set her and the Queen against each other. And it just wasn't like that. It was a far more practical, respectful relationship. The biographer Kenneth Harris, the Observer journalist, wrote a brilliant, I think, comparison between the two women, and they have so much more in common. The Queen's character was always very much, she was non-confrontational. Doesn't mean she was a pushover. She certainly had her views, but she never bristled like this. This is Olivia Coleman portraying, I think, kind of Queen Victoria in the wrong century. I mean, this is not the Elizabeth II that I have studied and followed and written about on very many occasions. So... It really does alarm me that around the world an awful lot of people watching the crown who take the crown as gospel as we have said before are going to be viewing this and thinking oh right well these two women really hated each other they didn't it's wrong
3: no 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 no
1: she rejected any mention of proposals
2: I'm determined to win this battle Sonny I don't often get into a fight but when I do I want to win
4: You will, ma'am.
1: Remember, you are not alone. It is 48 against one. We are going back with another word.
3: No, no,
0: no. No. So we've just seen the crown... Recreating, reimagining diplomatic negotiations. Creating, I think. Okay, I wouldn't get creating. There's no re in
1: there at all. <laughs> creating.
0: Creating diplomacy at Chogham. We see Margaret Thatcher in her own lodgings crossing out lots of different statements where this is the much fraught decision to bring sanctions of some kind against South Africa over apartheid. And she's crossing out all of these different words. They go through sanctions, proposals, measures, actions, and controls. And then ultimately the Queen is getting very frustrated with this. It's portrayed very much as a battle and they decide that instead of a useless politician, they need a writer. And then back comes in Michael Shea, her press secretary, who comes up with a wonderful solution, the word signals, which Margaret Thatcher then agrees to. And I mean the phrasing here is incredible. They're saying the Queen asks, have we won? And then she's told, yes, they have. And the Iron Lady has melted. And Robert but I could see you shaking your head. I mean, what do you make of this? I just
1: think it's... Again and again, it's ramming home this complete falsehood. This isn't just, as I say, it's not dramatic license. This is willful distortion of the truth. This idea that you've got the Queen with all the other Commonwealth leaders ganging up against Mrs. Thatcher. 48 to 1. 48 to 1, as the title of this episode goes. But the idea that the Queen is in charge of drafting protocols and everyone's having to sort of, on the one hand, Mrs. Thatcher says this and it has to go back to the Queen, who's there with the Foreign Secretary for having. So with Sonny Ramphar, with all the other leaders, and they're all trying to find a way to make Mrs. Thatcher come round. The Queen didn't exert or exercise this sort of power. She had no say over political horse trading. I mean, she just didn't want to get into that. It's not what monarchs do. Um, and, and you have Olivia Coleman totally out of character, saying phrases like, oh, I don't often get into a fight and it's risible. And then for the Queen, as you say, to ask for a writer, Let's let's get away from these politicians. Let's get someone who can come up with a word and somehow Michael Shay is the hero of the hour by coming up with this word. I mean, frankly, I mean, if you thought someone in the Royal Yacht had a copy of Roger's thesaurus, I think they are going to find signals rather quicker. And the Queen then congratulating her press secretary on finding this amazing, ingenious way through the impasse. I mean, obviously setting up Michael Shea for, uh, for, for, for for something else later in the episode. I don't know. It concludes with Sonny Ramphal uh, saying that in the ring, the Iron Lady has melted before the Queen. It just shows a complete tenure for the relationship between constitutional monarch and her Prime Minister. Yes, the Queen is Prime Minister of lots of other countries as well. But as head of the Commonwealth, it's not a constitutional role. She has a constitutional obligation in her dealings with Margaret Thatcher, not as head of the Commonwealth. But hey, you know, let's let's see how much worse it can get. Maybe in a minute, they'll put on boxing gloves and deck each other.
0: Yeah, I mean, to be fair to the Crown, it is accurate that Thatcher was opposed to signing this document, this agreement, and that bit is actually well, She accurate. had her
1: reservations, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's the nature of summits. I mean, all sides want to get stuff across. But the idea that you make the Queen the sort of cheerleader for the rest of the Commonwealth, rather than a sort of having this, this sort of overarching refereeing role, forget it.
0: Yeah, I mean, the Canadian Prime Minister, Brian Mulroney, who I think you also spoke to about your book, he said that the Queen personally asked him to prevent a major split over this in the Commonwealth. So it was discussed at the time that the Queen didn't want disunity within the Commonwealth. And obviously, Thatcher had this position that meant it was 48 to 1. But it's this idea that they were kind of, as you say, almost in this verbal boxing match on the Royal Yacht. I mean, it's great television, but you know, and just to note on the actual document, I have the Commonwealth, the in front of me about what was finally agreed and I mean there is no mention of of signal in the document at all. I think Thatcher referred to it as the agreement sending psychological signals so I don't know if that's where they got the idea from for this but yeah it's all quite far from the nitty gritty of what actually happened.
1: In essence the Queen's role at these events is to try and spread the love, to get everybody together to stop people taking sides I mean she did it very notably at an earlier Commonwealth summit, nineteen seventy in Zambia and it's there on the record you talk to anybody who was there um, the Queen actually diffused what was going to be a boiling row between the host president of Zambia and Margaret Thatcher at that one. So the Queen was very happy to try and sort of get all sides to agree what she simply wouldn't have done is what we see here which is to pick a side pick a fight and go for it no thanks. (laughs)
5: First, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher.
2: Prime Minister yeah. You have been forced to make significant concessions
3: Not that I noticed
2: You signed a document prepared by 48 countries Who were in conflict with you
3: I did But the question is Did one person move to the 48 Or did 48 move to one? Yes, I agreed to signals, but as you know, with one simple turn, a signal can soon point in an entirely different direction. Thank you.
1: So here we see the end of the Commonwealth summit, the press conference, where everyone feels rather satisfied that they've persuaded Margaret Thatcher to come around to their way of thinking, except that when she's asked about it, she makes it very clear that uh, she feels everyone's come around to her way of thinking. Uh, The summit ends on a sour note. And now I think we're heading back to Britain and no doubt the Queen.
2: So the Today newspaper has let us know they are now running a front page story about the increasingly sour relations between Buckingham Palace and Downing Street.
4: I think the time might have come for Your Majesty to make some kind of
1: preemptive statement. Uh, something that would kill the gossip stone dead.
2: But what if on this occasion I'd be happy for people to know the displeasure was actually real? That I am personally concerned about her lack of compassion? You know how seriously I take my constitutional responsibility to remain silent. But each of us has our line in the sand.
0: So that scene opens with Michael Shea, the Queen's press secretary, and he's having another meeting with his literary agent where she tries to persuade him that maybe he could use his writing ability to write some commercial books about his experiences working with the royal family and in Westminster. He kind of shivers at the word commercial, kind of portraying him as a bit of a snob, really. But he says that, you know, he would never betray those confidences and dismisses the idea as kind of giving the image that, yes, maybe he is a bit of a snobbish person, but that he's highly principled.
1: And he's a great literary thief, which is complete rubbish. I mean, this is a man who, well before this scene, had actually written a book called Britain's Offshore Islands, Maritime England. He went on to write lots of how-to books like Personal Impact, The Art of Good Communication, Spin Doctor. One was actually called To Lie Abroad. So the idea that Michael Shea was actually this sort of repressed James Joyce or Shakespearean figure who couldn't bear to dirty himself writing all prose is nonsense. And yes, we then see the Queen effectively telling him. This actually goes to the nub of why I really do find this episode deplorable. It shows the Queen saying to her press secretary, go and tell the papers that I hate Mrs. Thatcher. That's yes. what's happening here.
0: Because after this meeting with the literary agent, Michael returns to Buckingham Palace and he's told that the Today newspaper wants to write a story about tensions between Thatcher and the Queen over apartheid and these sanctioned discussions at Chogham. And just a small note, when they talked about the Today newspaper, I didn't know if this is something that the Crown had imagined, but there was actually a national newspaper yeah, yeah. called Today between First colour newspaper. Oh, there you go, between 1986 and 1995. So that is a bit of truth there. But yes, then Michael... Shea goes to speak to the Queen about this and he makes it clear, in fact the word is he wants it noted, that he thinks that the Queen should release a positive statement about Thatcher and how well she's doing to quell these rumours but then yes they portray the Queen saying something rather different don't they?
1: Yeah the Queen as played by Olivia Colman is up for a fight. She says each of us has our line in the sand and she wants Shay to go and essentially stir it all up and say how much she dislikes. Mrs. Thatcher. I mean, this just is laughable. It's just not the way the Queen operates. They can't even get the names right here. You've got the Queen's private secretary here, Martin Charteris. And Shea sort of says, oh, Martin, I don't want to do this. And Martin says this and the other. Charteris retired in 1977. We're in 1986 now. I mean, this is you know again. I mean, the Crown is a sort of I don't know parted company with the truth way back in this episode. What actually happened was that yes, the Sunday Times were indeed looking for a story to crank up the idea of rifts between Downing Street and the Palace, but it wasn't the Queen telling Michael Shea to do this. It was actually Michael Shea doing it himself, as we might uh, discuss a little later on but for now what we're seeing in the program is the queen saying right you go off and do my dirty work michael Uh, michael shea saying to martin chargers who wasn't there because he'd retired i don't want to do this martin martin says you better go and do it shea says well i want it on the record that i oppose this which was rubbish and now we see shea arriving at a west end pub where he's going to um he's going to sing like a canary to simon freeman of the sunday times A constitutional crisis was on the verge of erupting this morning as the Sunday Times published details of a sensational rift between Buckingham Palace and Downing Street. This story, which is likely to have a serious impact on what have traditionally been cordial relations between the sovereign... Far from being a straightforward, uncomplicated countrywoman... A late middle-aged grandmother who is most at ease when talking about dogs and horses She's shown that she's also an astute political infighter who is quite prepared to take on Downing Street when provoked.
0: And yes, he did sing like a canary after this pub meeting. We see Michael Shea going back to the palace and they are awaiting the physical newspapers to drop late on Saturday night, the first editions. Uh, There is quite an amusing moment where we see the spin doctors for both sides for the palace and Number 10 rushing to get this physical copy of the first edition. and They have a sort of awkward meeting and then scurry off with the papers. And obviously within the palace, they appear to be horrified by what the story actually says the headline was queen dismayed by uncaring thatcher which is the real headline of the story and this really was quite a bombshell wasn't it robert
1: Yes, it was a colossal bombshell. The idea that, um, as I said, that the palace had devised it was nonsense. Um, I've spoken to everyone involved in this, including the Queen's then private secretary, the real one, by the way, who's a very nice Australian called Bill Heseltine, not Martin Charteris, as we see here. And what happened was that they got a call on the Saturday afternoon from the Sunday Times asking for a comment. That was the first that the palace had the idea that this this bombshell was about to drop in the Sunday Times. And Heseltine did get on the phone to uh, number 10. So both sides were talking to each other. Both sides were horrified. By this. It wasn't a question of the palace waiting to see how their carefully planted explosion would work. They both felt, oh my god what on earth is this all about? There was a sort of backdrop to all this. This was the weekend before Prince Andrew's wedding. The Queen was actually informed while she was down at Windsor she was holding a drinks party for all the entourages of all the various European royal families who were in town for the wedding and had to be sort of called away and her private secretary said to her, look ma'am this Thing is coming out in the Sunday Times, and everyone was very worried about it. I suppose one factual point there we see, as you mentioned, both sides. Uh rushing to what I think is Victoria Station to pick up the first edition of the Sunday Times. And in those days, that is indeed what any of us did. If you wanted to see what was in the Sunday papers, the first thing you did was around 8, 9 o'clock at night, get down to a railway station where you could get your hands on the first copies. <laughs> they, wouldn't, they wouldn't have been doing this. They both were well aware of what was coming. They were both on the phone to each other. Both sides, Downing Street and the Palace, were going into damage limitation mode. They both thought this was very bad news and the only person although he hadn't been identified at this point, who knew the real story was Michael Shea because he hadn't been told to plant this story. He'd done it himself.
0: Yeah, this is where The Crown is so interesting because they mix fiction with fact very well. We see various different members of the royal family reading the physical copy of the article the next morning and then Margaret Thatcher's husband Dennis is reading it out to her and the words are pretty much accurate as to the actual article. On uh, page two leading on from the headline was another article titled The African Queen at Odds with Number 10 as the Crown says. They changed one word in the opening line. The original article said it has been a good week for Buckingham Palace and the Crown changed it to it's been an eventful week for Buckingham Palace. So not sure why they did that. But otherwise, it is accurate, including a line that I, when I first watched this, thought maybe the Crown had imagined where it talks about the Queen being a grandmother who is most at ease when she's talking about horses and dogs. And I didn't know if this was a kind of dig stereotyping from the Crown, but this actually was in the copy at the time. So they did stick very accurately to what was written, and even looking up at the mock-ups of the different front pages. I mean, obviously, they've changed the pictures to have the actors rather than the real Thatcher and the Queen, but it looks very real, as is always the case. But yes, what was going on behind the scenes that caused this all to happen that appears to have been imagined?
1: Let's credit to the Sunday Times. It was a brilliant scoop. I mean, it was a huge, huge story that reverberated right around the world, and they had been told by an impeccable palace source, i.e. the press secretary to the Queen, Michael Shea, that, you know, the Queen had all these fears and worries. And it wasn't just about the Commonwealth. I mean, it touched on things like the miners' strike. I mean, Shea really went for it. He talked about how the Queen was worried about the fabric of the nation, how she wasn't happy about Mrs. Thatcher even allowing U.S. Warplanes planes to refuel in Britain en route to bombing Libya. I mean, this was a very broad picture of a monarch who felt that her prime minister was a threat to the stability of the nation. And the palace were appalled and Downing Street were appalled. I was a student at university at the time, but I definitely remember reading this and thinking, ye gods, and it didn't take long for the rest of Fleet Street to join in. So here you've got this extraordinary, week. you've got this huge story blowing up in the papers and at the same time you've also got a royal wedding coming down the track
3: uncaring confrontational and socially divisive that's how these sources so close to the queen describe me prime minister that i lack compassion my government has done irretrievable damage to the country's social fabric While I greatly admire your sense of fairness and compassion for those less fortunate than us. Do you? Really? Let us not forget, I am the one from a small street with a father who could not bequeath me a title or a commonwealth, but only grit, good sense and determination.
1: So there we've seen the fallout from the Sunday Times story as Margaret Thatcher turns up for her first audience afterwards and she and the Queen it's sort of ding-ding round three in their ongoing spat throughout this episode. There's no contrition on the side of the Queen. Margaret Thatcher is spitting tax. She's furious. She talks about the way it's her goal is to change this country from being uh, dependent to self-reliance. The Queen's trying to get a word in. Thatcher charges on, and finally the Queen, she shoots back and says that she's obliged to support her prime minister It's a constitutional position. But then she says, could you not just once have supported me on this issue? As if she, the Queen, is an executive political monarch. I mean, there is absolutely no way the Queen would ask a democratically elected prime minister to take a position on the international stage to suit her own preferences. I mean, that's just nonsense. But anyway, never mind. It's what I think a lot of people around the world, and I believe they think that this was a battle. Margaret Thatcher chucks in the fact that, you know, I came from an irrelevant town. I wasn't born with castles and titles like you. The Queen is similarly robust in her replies, but I've studied this at some length. I don't buy this, but I'm interested. Do you feel it's credible?
0: I just find the genuine mix of fact and fiction or fact and imagination where there is not evidence very interesting and I can see how, you know, it's very convincing and compelling if you haven't studied this period. But yeah, this meeting comes across as really quite catty and yeah, there's the emphasis again on the similarities between the two women. They say this is a private meeting woman to woman and they uh, raise the fact that they were born six months apart, which that is true. And again, they accurately quote the article, lines such as the fact that, according to the Sunday Times, the Queen thought that Thatcher was uncaring, confrontational and socially divisive. Then there's this kind of gentle spicing up of the copy where the article said the Queen feared that during the miners' strike that long-term damage had been done to the country's social fabric, the crown spices up to irretrievable damage, which again I don't know, maybe they just preferred that wording but if you're going to be so close to the truth, it just it kind of irks me as to why they make those changes when they don't need to because then people just don't, mm. don't know what's real and what's not A- Another thing that's interesting is as they're ending this simmering meeting, it's just the tension is just unbearable. That just says that the Queen must be looking forward to the wedding between Prince Andrew and Sarah Ferguson. And it is true that the Sunday Times story, it was reported on the 20th of July, 1986, and that was three days before Prince Andrew's wedding. So again, it's true that this was all going on at the same time. But yeah, the actual sentiment of the intentions behind the recorded action is what's not clear.
1: Yeah, and I think at this point we should recall the Queen wasn't just upset about this Sunday Times story. She was distraught. In fact, Princess Josephine Lohenstein, who who's a friend of Princess Margaret's, she later said, Uh, Princess Margaret had told her it was the only time that she'd seen the Queen cry as an adult. I mean, it was that bad. The Queen felt awful about the Sunday Times article. And there's no question that Margaret Thatcher did feel hurt. Dennis Thatcher told one of her ladies-in-waiting that she was very hurt by it. So I just think they've got the atmosphere all wrong. It's not too combative, pugnacious, prize fighters still having a go at each other. You've got two rather wounded figures feeling they've been wronged in public. And there's much more sorrow and compassion and the reality of this story rather than this boxing ring that we see here.
0: Yeah. And in your book, Robert, you say that the, the Queen was said to have cried about it because she felt it gave the appearance that she'd cast aside everything she'd learned mm. about not speaking about her political views. And then that's obviously exactly what the Crown is adding fuel to that mm. image.
1: Yeah. She felt the Sunday Times article presented her as not just getting it wrong. The Queen felt that it, it showed she'd just taken leave of her senses, that it was a betrayal of all her own work, but also what her father had taught her, you know, this idea, you stay above politics. And suddenly here is the monarch being presented as a political activist. I mean, she found it profoundly unsettling. I mean, you have to remember this particular point, we're in the week of a royal wedding. I mean, popularity of the monarchy is at an all time high. Mrs. Thatcher has got a huge majority is about to get another one the following year in the 1987 election. So it's not as though either of these women are in a position, of great weakness. They're both at the top of their games but nonetheless it was for both I think a very wounding experience Sunday Times maintains that the story came from a highly placed
4: source within the palace and that's the line we're running with and we will deny it and you will look like fools spare me the
1: indignation I understand you have to say it but we both know that it's true. The newspapers are full not of Sarah and me the mummy's rift with the Prime Minister. There yes. Sunday Times.
2: You have to admit she has made a god awful mess of it. What was she thinking?
1: She did what she spent her life telling me I cannot do. She opened her mouth and expressed an opinion
0: this scene opens with Michael Shea deflecting calls from journalists wanting to know what has happened with this story, what is going on. He's denying that the Queen had any involvement and then we even hear him having a conversation with a man with a Scottish accent on the phone. He's unnamed but this is meant to be the Sunday Times editor Andrew Neil, who quite amusingly after this came out said that he was quite disappointed that he didn't even have a a walk-on part. It was just for a few seconds an anonymous unremarkable Scottish accent on the other end of a phone call saying he was dismayed that uh, Brad Pitt must have had other filming commitments um, but anyway it moves on from this and we see Prince Andrew's wedding day and all of the Queen's children are reacting to the story Prince Andrew is furious that his wedding has been overshadowed by the Queen's lapse of judgement in this situation and they're really laying into her judging her for this error of judgement but Prince Charles is shown to to be almost revelling in the Queen's supposed mistake. What, What did you make of that, Robert?
1: Well, I thought this was a moment where the Channel Four comedy series *The Windsors* suddenly comes um, barging its way into the crime because it's it's pure comedy. This scene, you've got sort of Andrew lying on a sofa saying, "Oh, golly, it's all wrong. It's my wedding day. That should be all over the papers." I mean, you know, the, the guy's about to get married. He's not. Last thing he's thinking about is you know what order things are on the news bulletins. It's his wedding day. Princess Anne's sitting there swigging champagne. She's teetotal. She wouldn't be doing that. It's a bit of light relief, really. I think it's just a sort of of remind us that the royal family is still there. We've seen precious little of any other members of the family um, during this, uh, and it's just saying there's another story here, but it's still for the press and obviously for the Queen and for Downing Street. um, The royal wedding is painted as a little more than a sideshow. It's still this ongoing rift between Queen and Prime Minister and it's still not healed.
0: Very interesting, Robert. You've here got a copy of the mail. I'm on. It's the day after the Sunday Times story came out and it says Royal Crisis Storm in big capital letters and the details, the stories about Andrew and uh, Fergie's wedding is just a box panel at the top of the newspapers. Mm-hmm. So presumably that inspired this scene.
1: No doubt that's true. And the story went on and on. I mean, here we are a full week later. That was Royal Crisis Storm was the front page of the Daily Mail on the July the 21st, 1986. The following Monday, it's still front page stuff. Queen's Aid attacks slur. This is the private secretary, Bill Heseltine, going into bat. I mean, there was a rather wonderful moment. I wish I'd been there to see it. Um, but soon after the royal wedding, the whole court then decamped up to Holyrood House in Edinburgh because it was Scottish week, as they called it when the monarch takes up residence in edinburgh and at the time the commonwealth games were going on in edinburgh and mrs thatcher came up there to stay because the commonwealth games were on and the queen very pointedly at dinner sat michael shea next to margaret thatcher i bet shea found that a particularly uncomfortable evening one unfortunate consequence of our denial of the story is that the
4: Editor of the Sunday Times has now come out, all guns blazing. And whilst we could continue to deny it, my own view is that it's no longer to our advantage. And I think we're now going to have to give them something. What? A culprit. We need to let them have a name.
0: So the final segment of this episode opens with the Queen sitting at her desk listening to the radio and the journalists are talking about this unprecedented constitutional crisis laying the blame at the Queen's feet. She then has a impromptu meeting with a man who is presented to be her private secretary, Martin Charteris, who says because of this pressure, an unfortunate consequence of the move that they made was that they need a culprit to deflect the blame. and he says they have to give them a name. It's not spelled out, but it is implied that the Queen gives a nod to allow this to go ahead because then we see Martin Charteris going to meet Michael Shea. He's looking through newspaper articles, including the Daily Mail, which really was one of several newspapers calling for Michael to resign. And then what we see is him made out to be a sacrificial lamb. He's kind of speaking to Martin saying we know each other too well. The implication being, you know, how can can you do this to me? To which Martin replies, you know, we know that we understand that you'll do the right thing. The implication being he will leave. He leaves the palace. He's got this uh, almost comical cardboard box of his possessions he scurries out. And and then there's an image that we often see in the crown, which is the Queen looking kind of stony-faced out the window at these events unfolding. What did you make of that, Robert? Well, it's
1: just simply wrong again. Michael Shea was the person who spoke very eloquently and far too freely to a journalist who attributed his words to the monarch. It made for a cracking story. He was not speaking with the Queen's authority. We know that everyone accepts that. Andrew Neal accepts that. I've spoken to Bill Heseltine, who was the private secretary at the time. He points this out. Michael Shea had just, for whatever reason, and he did have a high opinion of himself, he was a very engaging chap, but he could blab. And he effectively was responsible for this mess. He wasn't formally taken out and shot in a very palace way. The story was just allowed to sort of wither and die. But a few months later, Shea quietly left to take up a position as a PR spokesman for the Hanson Group of Companies. He, even before he left, he actually, in the words of one courtier at the time, said he even had the temerity to ask for a knighthood. He didn't get one. I mean, it's a very sad story in many ways. But the idea that the crown present here of this, as you call him, a sacrificial lamb, this, this honorable man falling on his sword to protect the queen is entirely wrong. He went, in the words of one member of staff at the time, he went because he had to go.
0: And then the postscript says that in 1994, apartheid fell, Nelson Mandela rose to power and he attributed this to sanctions, at least in part, the implication being that Margaret Thatcher's opposition to economic sanctions stood in opposition to uh, the falling of apartheid. What do you make of that, Robert?
1: What the Crown is trying to do here is tidy up all the loose ends and effectively say that it was the Queen and the Commonwealth who put Nelson Mandela into office in South Africa in the face of that beastly old witch, Mrs Thatcher. It's a far more nuanced picture than that, of course. And one thing that is not covered here, for example, is actually who was the first Western leader to call for the release of Nelson Mandela from prison? It was actually Margaret Thatcher. And they did meet briefly just before her fall from office. But at the end of this episode, What we're left with is a sense that we have a conniving executive and political queen who is quite happy to stand up to a democratically elected prime minister to try and tell that prime minister what to do. And then when things go wrong, is happy to throw other people under the bus. I think it's a very uh, damning and uh, corrosive uh, narrative. uh, And I hope people don't believe it, but I fear they will.
0: This is an example of the Crown telling a true story that is actually very interesting. The Sunday Times story is very interesting. It's, what it happened? Is, it's a
1: great story.
0: Yeah, what happened at Chogham is very interesting. And the inventions I just don't understand why they feel the need to do that because the truth is is astonishing in itself. I mean the world of spinning in politics and in the royal world is fascinating. So it doesn't seem to make sense to me as to why they twisted what seems to be the established narrative uh and turned it on its head.
1: You could have certainly had a much more delicate, finely tuned, very watchable plot line. They weren't great buddies, the Queen and Mrs. Thatcher. That's for sure. There were tensions. They had a lot of things in common. They were both non-showy. They were both had a great regard for their husbands. They were both hardworking. They were both deep down quite religious, and they were both, as it were, fighting their way in a man's world. They had a lot in common, but as 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 soulmates, they were not. And there was, I think, that could have been explored in all sorts of different ways. I think you had against it. You did have this backdrop of not just a royal wedding. You had a major Commonwealth crisis because the Commonwealth Games are actually happening in Britain, in Edinburgh at this very moment. And there was a great boycott because of Mrs. Thatcher's position. So there were all sorts of other plot lines they could have gone down. But instead, they chose to make Michael Shea as this ultimately heroic fool guy, paint the Queen as a baddie and more or less um, kick the royal wedding into touch so a very memorable episode started very well ended very badly but it's been fun revisiting it
0: yeah it's an absolutely beautiful episode i think the production value is incredible i think the acting is really astonishing but yes quite confusing for people that are watching this and trying to figure out what actually was going on with the queen in 1985 and 1986 i think they might be left a little confused but that's why we're here (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of The Crown, fact or fiction? We hope you enjoyed this dive back into series four of The Crown.
1: Yes, that was episode eight of series four, known as 48 to one. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, Do keep sending in your suggestions for episodes that you'd like us to have a look at. Uh, You can get in touch via email or WhatsApp. The details are in the show notes.
0: Yes, Robert. One of the messages we got was from Nicole in Canada, who said she would like us to go back to the first season and look at an episode that covers the story of Princess Margaret and Peter Townsend. We're going to oblige... The next episode we're going to look at is called Gel Ignite, which is episode six of series one.
1: Yes, Nicole, thank you for that suggestion. We are certainly going to enjoy revisiting that particularly turbulent and fascinating period in the mid-50s as Princess Margaret and Group Captain Tanzan grew ever closer, much to the dismay of the old court at
0: the palace. Yes, now that episode was first released in November 2016, which was quite a while ago. I myself was just starting university in my first term. So, (laughs) yeah, I think it's good for me to refresh my memory about this as well, and it might be a good idea if you do too.
1: Well, and thank you, the many of you, in fact, who have written in with all sorts of messages messages. This one from Tuscany. I've never seen one episode of The Crown, but I thoroughly love listening to all of your podcasts. It's very interesting and informative. Thank you. Well, thank you. Um, Jennifer Hall has picked me up on uh, my remarks uh, over um, the wedding of Harry and Meghan, where I said it was uh, uh, atypical to have a gospel choir. She says, factors that made it an atypical wedding, a gospel choir. Presume you mean an atypical royal wedding. You're spot on, Jennifer. Yes, gospel choirs have been a feature at many, many weddings. In fact, one I was that the other day. But yes, for royal weddings, uh, Harry and Meghan's was certainly a first.
0: So thanks to everyone who suggested an episode or left a review or comment. Do keep them coming as we really appreciate them.
1: But until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The Crown, Fact or Fiction. Goodbye.
0: Goodbye.
5: For free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Our hit series, Everything I Know About Me, is back for a brand new season. And this time, our guest needs no introduction. I'm coming
2: to find me, Darren!
1: But here's one anyway.
2: Hi, I'm Gemma Collins and this is everything I know about me.
1: If you think you know all about Gemma Collins, think again. Because this is the GC as you've never heard her before.
2: It's been exhausting. Unashamed. And I was really heartbroken because I was pregnant and he was having an affair. Unfiltered. I have had an operation as well years ago. I have a designer vagina. Yeah, baby. I don't have camel toe.
1: Unbelievable.
2: And then they advised me, you need to have a termination.
1: And, uh, yeah, I remember that being really stressful. Everything I know about me with Gemma Collins is out this Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.